Luke chapter three is where we will be this morning. I want to um, I want to take you back um, a little bit. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he has this way of asking the right question and getting to them. And he says, "Who do men say that I am?" Oh, and the answers go all over the place. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're this or that or the other thing. And if we were to ask that question today, who who would you say that Jesus is? We'd get all kinds of different responses. We'd get people saying he's a great teacher. We'd get people saying that that he's God's son. We'd get people saying that he shows us the way to life. Or people saying that 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 he's some lady out on the street corner um that doesn't have a home or i'm jesus you're jesus we're all jesus we get all kinds of strange answers all kinds of close answers all kinds of different answers different opinions about who this jesus is this morning i want to look at the testimony though of two in particular and then a third that comes as a result of these and it comes in the period where Jesus is being baptized. John the Baptist, his forerunner, was going forward with a baptism of repentance. He was telling people, you need to repent of your sins and offering them a chance to be baptized. Baptism wasn't something new per se. In fact, there was a place at the temple where you could wash off and basically submerge yourself before going into the temple grounds to be ritually clean. So it wasn't like baptism was a completely unheard of thing. But this idea of baptism so strongly connected with repentance was something different. And it had people asking questions. This, this is a little different. This is a little strange. Could, could this be him? Is this him? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? Is this the anointed one of God? The way he teaches with authority and with power. It, it, could this be him? And people were asking this of John the Baptist. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3, starting with verse 15. Stand with me as we read God's word. Luke 3, 15. We're going to read through verse 22 this morning. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Luke says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when the people, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the testimony of Jesus Christ through this passage of scripture, I pray that it does change our lives. I pray that it helps us see Jesus better. And it brings us to an obedient response. Lord, use your word. 
In Christ's name, amen. We have the beloved in the river. The one who is beloved being baptized in the river Jordan. And in this, in this passage, before we see Jesus actually baptized, we actually see something else first. We see a testimony. You know, there's, there's times when, um, we all have to give testimony to who we say this Jesus is. And John gives that testimony. In verses 15 to 17, we see the testimony of John. What does John say about Jesus? I want to look with laser focus on Jesus. I don't want to get caught up in the particulars and the details. I don't, we're not even going to talk much about Herod, even though he plays a role in this story. That, that's not what I want to do because that's not what the scripture does. It turns a laser focus in on Christ. If you have um, a telescope, you know that you can't see things very well if you're trying to look at a lot of things at once. It's when you focus in on a particular item. It's when you adjust your focus to see one specific thing that you see it. And the better telescope you use, the better you see that thing. I have a friend who's got a telescope who posts pictures uh, that he takes with his telescope. And it makes me a little jealous because I would love to spend time looking in a telescope and seeing things up close and that sort of thing. And he'll post pictures of the moon or things like that. With the telescope, you can't see very much at a time. It's not designed for that. It's designed to look at the detail. That's what I want us to do. I want us to take our telescopes and I want us to fine-tune them so that we're focused on Christ. I don't want to see everything else. I don't want to, I don't want to look all around and see the, the vastness of the sky and all the stars all over the place. I want to tune our focus specifically on Jesus Christ. Because that's what I think John is doing and what Luke is doing as he writes this passage. Listen to the testimony of John, verses 15 to 17. And the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts whether John concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. People are starting to wonder. Now, the prophecies about the Messiah are in some ways specific, but in some ways vague. In some ways, they're hard to see. It's hard to know. And so when they're hearing him and when they're seeing the way that he's living, how, how much like a prophet he is. I mean, he's wearing sackcloth and he's eating locusts and wild honey. We ain't seen that since the days of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. We haven't seen that sort of centricity about a man of God since the old prophets. We haven't seen this kind of person speak with this kind of authority. We haven't heard anyone call the nation to repent like the prophets of the days of old. And they're wondering, could, could this be Messiah? Could this be the prophet? Oh, we, know, we knew there are prophets. Most of them are fake. Most of them are phonies. This one, could this be the one? And so they start questioning. Verse 16, John answered them all. He's hearing the rumors. He's hearing them talk. Listen to his testimony. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff burn with unquenchable fire. John gives us a couple of specific things 
about Christ. He has turned his focus directly on Jesus and he's, he wants us to see a couple of things in particular. One is that he is coming. Look back in 16. He talks about how he baptizes them with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. There is a very real, real aspect to this. This isn't just one day off in the future. They are looking with expectation for the Messiah, and they're looking at John and saying, is it you, John? And John says, no, but he's right after me. He's coming. Sometimes we like to play this game where we think it's far off. We don't have to worry about it. You ever, um, I did this one time. I thought, Carrie's gone for a couple of days. She's visiting her sister or something like that. I'm going, I'm going to clean up everything. No, seriously. Seriously. But I'll do it tomorrow. That sounds more like me, right? Yeah. I'm not going to do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. And I'll, I'll get started in a little bit. I'll do it a little bit later. She comes home and it looks just as bad as it did when she left. <laughs> Because I kept putting it off. And then, so I did that. I don't know how many times. I, we don't need to talk about that. But eventually I learned if I'm actually going to do anything, I need to start as soon as she leaves. Like as soon as possible, I need to start things. Because if I don't, I won't get anything done. And then I have to face her when she comes back. There's a very real way that we put off the coming of Jesus. Like it's some far away event. Like, oh, it's, it's way off in the future. I don't have to worry about it right now. I'll get ready for it later. No, we need to know he's coming. He is coming. For John, it was just a few verses later. For John, he's about to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's about to say, this is the one I was talking about. This is the one. I was just telling you about him, and now here he is. John knows his imminent, imminence, close at hand. We Sometimes we play the opposite game, where we act like Christ is coming in 10 minutes, and everybody hurry, scurry around, get everything cleaned up, come on. You don't know, he could be here right now, come on, hurry, hurry, hurry. And we forget the fact that, well, he is coming, but it's not just for us to look busy. His coming isn't just something that we've got to look like we're doing something good, we got to put on airs as though what we're doing matters. No, he's really coming and we really need to get ready. John says he's coming. Oh, he's coming. Jesus Christ is coming. He's already come once, but he is coming again. And I want you to know, if you are not ready for that day, what are you waiting for? You don't want to stare him down and not be ready. You don't want to appear before him in your sin. You see, he's offering a forgiveness that will take away your sin, that will cleanse you, that will make you right with God so that you can stand in that day ready. Jesus is coming. Second thing John tells us, he is mighty. Just before he says he's coming. Look back in 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I. Oh, it ain't me. It's one much mightier than me. In fact, he says, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. In a house, if you were rich, you would have multiple servants. There'd be a servant that would keep up with the finances and the administration of the house. Think of it like a general manager of a restaurant, making sure that everybody's scheduled, every, that, that all the shifts are covered, making sure that all the supplies are there. 
everything gets ordered and is in there. You can't sell food if you don't have the food. <laughs> so you got to make sure you have the food and you got to have something to put it in and, and you got to have people to do work the shifts and you got to have the supplies to build things. You got to make sure that your fryers or your grills or your ovens or all that kind of stuff is working. You got to have someone who is making sure that, that, that the whole situation is running. And in a household, especially in a rich household, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of things that happen. And so you would have someone who would be over that. Joseph plays this role in Potiphar's house. But there'd be other servants too. There'd be some chefs. You'd have some folks cooking. That would be their job. You would have some folks keeping the sheep or whatever animals, livestock you had. Whatever farm might be taking place, you would, you would have that kind of stuff. You would have people whose job it would be to take care of kids. You would have people whose job it would be to do various functions. But the servant who couldn't really do anything else, there were two, there were two pro, there were two servants. There were low men on the totem pole. One would be the foot washer. Yeah. You walk around in dusty feet with sandals, if that. All day long, you come into somebody's house, y'all know well mama feels about mud in her house. Don't you boys? Yeah. You don't bring, you don't track mud in my house. There would be someone there, a servant whose job it was to clean people's feet. Now you thought your job was bad. But there was another servant who was even less useful than that. He'd walk around with the master holding his shoes. Couldn't do anything else. I'm just going to hold your shoes until you need them. He says, I'm not even worthy to be that. Compared to this guy, you think I'm great. Compared to this guy, compared to the actual Messiah, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps on his sandals. He says, you've got the wrong guy. Let me tell you about the mighty one who's coming. Let me tell you about the worthy one who's coming. The one who is so much greater, so much more powerful, so much more than I could ever be or imagine to be. Let me tell you about him. It's amazing. Some of us would like to talk about Jesus, but we'd kind of like to show that we're close. You know, me and Jesus, we're buds. Yeah, I hang out with Jesus all the time. I told, a, I told a, someone, someone that I worked for, I said, you know, in, in a way, I kind of I think of you kind of like the way you run the restaurant. It's kind of the way that God runs his church. And the way that we do what you want us to do is similar to, to that. And he said, I like to think that I'm like Jesus. <laughs> we all do, don't we? But have you ever really realized just how mighty he was? Have you ever really realized just how great Jesus is and how, how not great you are? See, part of being ready for his coming is realizing how much you fall short. We've all sinned and we've all come short, but we have a mighty Lord. John reminds us of that, not only that he's coming and that he's mighty, but he, that he is just. Now, why do I say just? Look at verse 17. He talks about the winnowing fork. It's my understanding that when you grow wheat, sometimes junk grows with the wheat. In fact, there's a parable of a man who goes to sow wheat into his fields. And then his enemy comes by night and sows weeds. And so he's trying to grow good stuff and his enemy has planted bad stuff. 
and now they're growing up and, and, and you don't know it until things start growing and then you see the good in with the bad and the servant asks the master, should I pull out the bad? He says, no, you might pull up the good too. Let them grow until it's harvest time and then we'll separate them out. And that's exactly what he's talking about Jesus is doing. The winnowing fork is in his hand. He is going to thresh his fields. He's going to get the wheat out of his fields. But in getting the wheat out, he's also going to get the junk out. Now, you don't want to save the junk. So look what he does. He gathers the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is a real judgment of God coming. When the mighty one comes, he will separate the wheat and the chaff. He will get the good stuff and the bad stuff apart. The good stuff he'll keep. The bad stuff he won't. If a tree doesn't bear fruit, what do you do? You cut it down. And around these parts, I don't know, does Prattville have any burning laws? At our house, we live out of the city. We don't have any burning laws. So guess what we do with stuff that gets cut down? We burn it. It's about the only way we can get rid of it. <laughs> if y'all seen my yard, you know, uh, I live out in the woods, so about the only hope. There's a very real judgment of God. And it's not unjust. It's not that he shouldn't be judging. Oh, he should. And it's not that he judges wrongly. No, he judges rightly. He keeps the wheat and burns the chaff because the wheat doesn't need to be burned and the chaff doesn't need to be saved. You see, there's a real point where we don't want to admit that God is just enough to condemn those who deserve to be condemned, but also loving enough to offer salvation to save the ones who accept Him. We want a Jesus who loves everybody, or we want a Jesus that burns everybody that doesn't do exactly what we say. We don't want a Jesus who's just, because it makes us realize how unjust we are. But that's the true Jesus. He's just. And that means that if we are not willing to submit our lives to Him, we're chaff. We're not wheat. Now, there's a very real judgment. It happens. After Christ comes, the good news is you can face judgment today. You can come before God as a sinner and confess your sin and submit yourself to His mercy. He will forgive you. See, that, that's, that's the Jesus that John knows. He's a Messiah who's coming. He's a Messiah who's mighty, and He's a Messiah who's just. There's another testimony. John teaches them more of the good news. By the way, in verse 18 where it says where he proclaimed, he preached good news to the people, that word is literally he evangelized the people. He's an evangelist. But we also see in verses 21 and 22 the testimony of the Father. Jesus says this to the Pharisees before. Um, if, if you have a witness of one person, you can't really take it in the court of law. It was a rule, and it should be a rule, that you need at least two witnesses to establish a matter, right? You got one person that says this is what happened and one person that says, no, something completely different happened. Who are you going to believe? You need at least two witnesses to corroborate what actually took place. And Jesus has two witnesses. One is John the Baptist, but one is the Father. Well, how does the Father give testimony? Well, let's see. Verses 21 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God says three things to testify about this Jesus Christ. The first thing He says is, He has my Spirit. 
Now, he doesn't say that as much as he demonstrates that. When Jesus was baptized, verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Picture it. I think it's Matthew that tells us all four, all four Gospels refer to Jesus as being baptized. Three of them show us what happened. Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us what happened. John talks about, John the Baptist in the Gospel of John is talking about seeing the Holy Spirit descend on him. So he refers to the baptism, but John doesn't actually lay out what happens. Matthew and Mark, one of those two tells us that when he comes up out of the water, that it's then that the Holy Spirit descends. Luke tells us that he was baptized and was praying, but here comes the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just pop into Jesus. No, no, you see heaven open. And it's almost, I, I can't describe it, it's almost like a bird. Like a, like a little dove. A dove that, remember, would be used for sacrifices in the temple. A dove that would, a dove that Noah released to find land. A dove. Almost. It's not, it's not a dove, but it's kind of like a dove. It looks like it's, it's this small bird that's just gracefully floating down, that's, that's flying down, resting on this Jesus. And everybody that sees it knows. This is God's spirit. Now, did he not have the spirit? No. He's God in flesh. You better believe he had the Holy Spirit. God's just demonstrating. I want you to know that this is mine. And so I'm going to show you my spirit descending on him. I'm going to make it visible so you can't deny it. So you can't just assume it. So you'll know certainty. Remember, that's why Luke is writing this. He's writing so that we will know that what we've been taught is true. Here comes that Holy Spirit. He descends on Christ. He's got my spirit. We have four kids. Some of my kids you can look at and by their faces tell that they're mine. All four of them have some resemblance to me. Poor things. Some of them have a little bit more mama. They're the lucky ones. But sometimes you can see a parent and a child by the way that they act. You're your mama made over. You ever heard that? Just like your daddy. The way they act, the, the way they do certain things. They have little tendencies that a parent has. God says, he's got my spirit. He's just like me. Not only does he have my spirit, God says, he is my son. The voice comes from heaven, as if that's not enough. The voice comes from heaven and he says, you are my beloved son. That's where I got the title, Beloved in the River. He's at the River Jordan being baptized, and God says, you're my beloved son. You're the son I love. He's my son. One time I was playing soccer, and I could hear on the sidelines my dad cheering for me. Um, one particular time I did something great. He said, that's my son. Another time I did something that wasn't so great, and he said, whose son is that? <laughs> um, that's my son. That's a proud father right there. Everybody, I want you to know, that's my son. Not only is that my son, that's my beloved son. He's my son. I could see him smiling ear to ear in heaven, seeing Jesus doing what the Father willed him to do. I could see him puffing out his chest a little bit. That's my boy. That's my boy. You are my beloved son. Notice he doesn't say, hey, everybody, everybody around. You see this guy right here? He's my son. He's talking directly to Jesus. You, singular you, second person. He's not talking to the masses. He's not saying this person that all of you are seeing, this is my son. 
He says, Jesus, you're my boy. I love you. That's something special. Everybody else is just eavesdropping. It's the testimony of the Father. He has my spirit. He's my son. He has my favor. Now, Luke has made a point to tell us that he has, that Jesus has God's favor. Back in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 40, he says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Chapter 2, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This isn't the first time that we've seen that God's favor is on this Jesus. But now God himself is saying it. Before it was Luke telling you, okay, this boy is growing in the favor of God. He's growing in the grace of God. He's growing up to maturity with God's favor. But now it's the voice from heaven declaring it. Look in, look at the end of 22. You're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I love you and I'm proud of you. I delight in you. That's the testimony of the father. He's got my spirit. He is my son. He's got my favor. That just leaves one more testimony. The testimony of you. Remember, Jesus asked that question, who do men say that I am? And they give all these different answers. And then he turns to the disciples and say, but who do you say that I am? And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? We've got the testimony of prophets. We've got the testimony of the scripture. We've got the testimony of the spirit speaking into your heart telling you who this Jesus is. You've got the testimony of John the Baptist, that he is coming and that he is mighty and that he is just. You've got the testimony of the Father that says he's got my spirit. He is my son. He's got my favor. What's your testimony? Do you have one? Who do you say that he is? Let me pray for you. Father, in this time, we have to answer that question. Who do we say that you are? Lord, I pray that we would answer not just not just prophet, not just anointed one, Christ, Messiah. Father, I pray that we would be able to say that you are Lord, that you're the one in control, that you are the one in charge. I pray that we can be able to say that you have forgiven us of our sins, that you have cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that you have put your righteousness on us and given to us your name so that we can be your sons and your daughters. Father, for those who can't say that, for those who have not experienced your forgiveness, who do not know you that way, Father, I pray that your spirit would convict them and testify directly into their hearts and that they would heed his words and surrender themselves to you. Father, if someone needs to do that this morning, help them come forward. There may be some here who are your children, they've, they've surrendered to you. They've asked you for forgiveness. They have trusted in your son to save them from their sins. And you're calling them to do something. Maybe it's to join this church. Maybe it's to engage in some active form of ministry. To tell a specific person about their faith. To, to do something in response, in obedience to you. Father, I pray that you would help them do that. Or whatever the case may be. I pray that our testimony would line up with yours. You do your work in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.